I love that song. Because so much I do, I say, Lord, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how we need you. And Lord, we thank you for this place that you gave us in a little grove of trees. Lord, none of us in here earned it. We don't deserve it. Lord, it was set apart another century ago, Lord, as a sacred and holy place. So, Lord, we just thank you for your presence here as you are in us and among us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through this word, this word that is from your earthly half-brother, Yehuda, Lord, that we call Jude. Lord, I just pray that you'll bless this study of this word, Lord, that you inspired through him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we're going to take the entire book of Jude. We're going to go light on the first part. We handled that Wednesday night. We did probably six verses, and so I'm going to skim those for, for those that couldn't be there and get to the highlights. And this is a challenge. As Gary Bennett would say, and Gary, when you get up from your nap today, your wife's told me you'll be watching this video. So uh, get ready. I'm going to spray you with the fire hose. He, uh, Gary's in, in fire management, and he always says, Pastor, you sprayed us with a fire hose this morning. So today we're going to go through it. Open your Bibles to the book of Jude. It's one page. It's one of those small letters. And as you, uh, as you remember, in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, we were discussing, or John was discussing false teachers. And we're going to look at false teachers again today, a little different kind of false teachers. These are not... Uh, those kind that we saw, but this is a different kind of a teacher, kind of a person that's persuasive, that finds their way into a congregation, persuades people, and eventually creates division in a church. People that are filled with charisma, and you go, oh, wow, listen to what they're saying. Pastor, listen to what he's saying. And yet they are like clouds in a Texas drought that produce no rain. That's how I thought about it. They're like pecan trees deep down in the fall that seem to be loaded and then don't give us a crop. That's what these teachers are like. So we're going to look at those. The main overlying theme of all of this today, I would say the biblical, if we look at the whole counsel of God's word, is that whatever a person sows, that is what they'll reap. And Jude is going to tell us that uh, it's always been that way, that prophets of old spoke about it. It came true. And both when you reap good and you live and you walk according to the Spirit, you will reap the things of the Spirit. You will reap the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Can you all hear me well, everybody? And uh, when you reap flesh, you're going to reap disappointment, and you're going to reap heartache and ruin. God has always been and will always be against those who oppose him. He will judge those. We sometimes see people, we see a Hitler come to power, somebody, and we go, how can this person go unchecked? How can they not be judged? They will be judged. That's what Jude is telling us. Because we know from Scripture that every knee will bow, not some. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There's some odd things in Jude. I'm going to tell you right up front. We read about this stuff that Alex, and Alex listens to this uh, going to work. He calls them woo-woo. You've heard him say woo-woo, haven't you, Faber? Well, th thanks for participating and helping, Faber. But, but uh, woo-woo is that kind of woo. You read something and it's kind of weird and everything. And woo-woo is if it's really out there and really strange. And so that's what Alex calls woo-woo. 
These are, this is not woo-woo in here. This is not stories that we're to focus on how, you know, since I first came, Tim wants to know what Gen Genesis 6 is all about and how did these beings come that were sons of God and mate with human beings. That is not the point of the story. The point of the story, Tim, is that God brought judgment on those kinds of things, those kinds of activities that ended up outside of God's boundaries for humanity and, and for his spiritual realm. Uh, this book will go from biblical history where we see things that happen and it will end with us, the believer, standing in righteousness before the throne without condemnation. We learned this morning in men's Sunday school that all believers in Jesus, all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are sanctified. Y'all hear me? We're all saints, Kathy Adamo, not just St. Mary and Joseph, and I always pick on and our, our poor Catholic there in the back. But the Bible tells us that all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are saints. We're all sanctified, but yet not all, all of us are living sanctified lives. We're not living in our identity in Christ. So that's what these guys are addressing. They say, hey, you're better than this. You're sanctified in the Lord. That is your identity. This was written, as I said, by his real name would have been Yehuda, which we say in English, Judah. I don't know why we put it in Jude, but I think it was because it was the Greek rendition of his name. It's the same name as Judas, exactly. We're having commentary today from my son. He's somewhere in the crowd. Uh, I've never heard a sermon on Jude, not one time in my life. I don't know that I ever read it much other than going, wow, that was weird. I wonder what that's all about. I now know what it was about. And it's so wonderful that we can read this today and go home knowing why this was inspired and put in the Bible. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 1. Jude, or Yehuda, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, those who are sanctified, by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I reminded the group on Wednesday night that a bondservant back in those times was a servant who fell so much in devotion and love to their master that at that point they wished to work for that person for life. And there was a ceremony in which the master would take the servant out and they would put an earring in that person because that person now belonged to the master. I want to contend with you all that, that and, and put out the idea that each of us is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. When we truly have given our hearts to him, we're like that servant that was taken out and had that earring put in, that identifier, and we are his forever. We are bondservants. Jude does not do any name dropping here. He doesn't say, I'm Yehuda who happens to be the half-brother of Jesus. So in his not mentioning Jesus, we see great humility in this person. Amen? I think if I had been, I would have said, y'all, I'm Jude. Remember, I had the brother. I'm, I'm, I'm the little brother of Jesus. Y'all remember him? But Jude doesn't do that. And he says that each of us, and I will say this, we are called. That means we are invited by the gospel. God is inviting you. He is speaking to you 24-7 on K-G-O-D. Okay, God? All right, 24-7 saying, I love you. I need you. I want a relationship with you. He doesn't need us, but we need him. We love him because he first loved us. But he takes us and calls us, and when we answer at that moment in time, we are sanctified and justified, as we studied this morning in our wonderful book. We are sanctified, meaning we are set apart. We are made holy. 
Justified means that our sins have been paid for, and that is our status in the Lord Jesus. We are called, we are sanctified, and then he preserves us. He guards us and keeps us spiritually. The moment you came to the Lord, and Barbara, the moment you received the Holy Spirit, there was a hedge of protection spiritually put around you where you are a child of the King. You are a daughter of the King in heaven, and that is never removed. Then he says that we, not only that, we are preserved and guarded, and we have mercy, peace, and love multiplied to you. What is mercy? Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve, but grace is when you get what you don't deserve. It's a kind of a funny little quip. I got all tongue-tied on that on Wednesday, and Doreen helped me and sent me a meme, but I didn't have room in this PowerPoint to put it up. And then he says, peace, which we know. What is the Jewish word for peace? Shalom. This whole congregation understands shalom, paid for, at rest, at perfect peace, a peace which passes all understanding. That is what we are promised. That is our inheritance, whether we choose to receive our inheritance or not. And love, and look at both of those are fruits of the Spirit. Verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, he says, I wanted to write you just about all the stuff that's easy about the common salvation that Jesus was, was, he was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again, all right? And then in believing in him, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, concerning our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you. That means kind of warning you, talking to you about it, uh, coaching you on to contend earnestly for the faith. So he tells us that we are to contend earnestly for the faith. What does contending for the faith mean? We talked about it Wednesday. It's when you're in almost like an, an athletic struggle, a race, where you're going to contend. You're going to be a defender of the faith when you're out in the byways and the marketplaces, and you're going to look to your truth as coming from the Word of God and the Word of God only, all right? That is what contending earnestly means, and I talked on Wednesday about what it is that we contend for, and you can read that whopper of a 10-page notes that go along with this sermon today and read all of those things listed. And he says, for the faith which was once and for all delivered, once for all delivered to the saints, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. Here he goes. He goes from talking about the great things to saying certain people will float in and out of our fellowship, okay? They're going to come here. We're not to be phobic. Everyone is welcome at the grove, but we are always discerning at the grove, no one ever comes here in, in the first month do I say, hey, I think you ought to take over a, a Sunday school department. We don't do that because we give people a chance to be vetted and for us to hear their testimony, to make sure that if they're voting and they have a say-so in the outcome of this church and how it progresses, that they have a living, active relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. He says, some crept in unknown who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, and they, look at what they do. Here's the apostasy. Here's the thing that they preach. They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. That's one way to translate this. Another would be into licentiousness, into sensuality, and they deny the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is exclusive, Raymond. Jesus said in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
and people will come and distort things and go, well, no, there are other ways, and we need to talk about this. And, but, but Jude is warning us that when you do that, you're moving from what God gave us, which is the grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus who loved us and died for us. And we know in Romans 5, 8, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't when we had somehow reached, reached some level of perfection. Contention, I wrote here, is to strive in opposition against difficulties, all right? And, and to contend for the faith, struggle for the faith. And he says, some have turned this grace, this free gift, into license. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. I'm reading to you now. Uh, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So what is the basic meaning of sensual? I thought about this this week. Was it just that they were doing things of the flesh? I think sensual is something that's based on feelings or emotion. It is teachers will come along, and we see this all the time, don't we, who end up giving their teachings based on feelings or emotion or sensationalism, where each Successive service needs to be more sensational, sensual, having to do with my emotions than the next. Guys, I want to tell you that emotions can be lined up with the Word of God, but it's very, very easy for them to be lined up with our flesh. Our feelings are very volatile, but when we have faith in the Lord and in His Word, they're not volatile at all. God's Word says what it says. And so I think it's a warning to people in this day and age to not follow the, the emotional. I put here the apostasy was, and you hear this today on TV or in pulpits. These teachers are out there, I put today, focusing on psychobabble. Y'all know what I mean by psychobabble? Humanism, psychobabble, and feel-goodism. Feel-goodism is not the gospel. You don't always feel good when you receive the gospel. Sometimes your heart's convicted, you know, you have to repent and change. Amen? But if someone's teaching psychobabble and feel-goodism, and you're going to be the very best you and all this kind of stuff, and you never hear about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sins, you're listening to psychobabble. You're not listening to the gospel. The gospel, true preaching, is about sin. It is about redemption. It is about the beautiful gospel of faith in Christ and Christ alone. It's easy. You know, I, sometimes I struggle and I think, well, I don't want to teach this. This is a tough passage. This, like last week was kind of tough. I was surprised to see some people come back on Wednesday. But you know what? It shows me that you love the Word of God more than you love yourself. When we hear God's Word and we respond to it, we're in love with Him and His Word more than ourselves. And how do we stay discerning? How do we keep ourselves on the alert? I think one way that we've managed to do this at the Grove, at least in the last seven to eight years since I've been here, is we engage in verse-by-verse -verse teaching of the Bible. So we try to stay continually in tune, as I say, or as it's mentioned in Acts, with the whole counsel of God's Word. Most of you all are so schooled in the Word that when you hear something that's false, something is not right in your spirit. You go, something about that's weird. I don't, I don't like that. Something about that bothers me. And that is when you're bathing your mind and bathing your intellect and bathing your heart with God's Word, it becomes sort of a filtering system. 
There's a great verse I love, and it says that the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. This is Hebrews 4.12, I believe. And it's a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That means you're taking in God's Word, and it's like a software system, an antivirus that's there, and it goes, "Uh uh-uh, that's not a good thought that you have. Deep, and you press the thing, keep it or eliminate it, and and you delete it, right? And that's the way God's Word is in each of our hearts. It gets into our souls. And it's, like I say, like this operating system. Jude says that these fakes, they reduce the grace of God to doctrines of feelings and emotions and sensuality. And secondly, they deny the only Lord God, the exclusivity of Jesus. This is a quote now out of gotquestions.org that I think is a, a great quote. Feelings are not bad. They sometimes, sometimes our feelings are aligned with scriptural truth. However, they are more often aligned with our sin nature or our flesh. So we need to be careful to be men and women that walk by faith and not by feelings. Amen? That walk by the knowledge that we have of God's word and live accordingly. Verse 5, for I, but I want to remind you, Jude says, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, and the things that I have underlined are things I want to comment on. Afterwards, they were destroyed who did not believe. So let's just take that part first. He's referring to that scripture in Numbers 13 and 14 where the people, God told the people to go in and check out the land and instead they went in and did things God didn't even tell them to do. They went in to count the troops, see how high the walls were and do all of this stuff. And when they came back, remember the report we studied when we went through the Torah? It says, it says, and the enemies, the giants that were in the land saw us as grasshoppers as we saw ourselves. And I talked at that time when we learned this, that much of how we see ourselves, and we, when we don't see ourselves as being more than conquerors, we do not see ourselves with our identity in Christ. The, the evil one, your enemy, lies to you in your ear and tells you your things that you're not. Tells you you're a grasshopper when you're not a grasshopper. You're a child of the king. And so a whole generation was left behind. You can read about that in Numbers 13 and 14. It says, afterwards, they were destroyed. They, stuck, they were stuck in Kadesh Barnea. Y'all remember for how many years? 38 years, 38, 39 years, you know, somewhere between that. They got stuck there because of their fear instead of acting on their faith and going in and taking the land that God had promised them. And then he mentions this, Tim. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. I think this alludes, Tim, to Genesis 6, where it says that the angels did not stay in the realm that God intended them to be in. I don't know how that all worked, but they came down and they engaged in things with the daughters, with the, the daughters of men, is what the scripture tells us. And they had stepped out of the bounds that God had in his order for the universe, for his world. And what happened subsequent to that? The flood came. And the offspring or whatever they were of these people were destroyed. And it says many of these angels were thrown into the the abyss. And it says he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of of the great day. And then he talks in 7 as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar, similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh or set forth as an example 
suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Judah reminds us that Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for many, many reasons. You know, some folks think it was just because of their addiction to homosexuality. But we're told in other other verses in the Bible, it was out of their greediness and their self-centeredness. And all of their sin really was born out of them loving themselves more than loving order and the things, the way the things were in the order of God. Y'all follow me? And so what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They were burned up with fire. And he, he calls that their sexual immorality and going after strange flesh. They were set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Verse 8, likewise also these dreamers, he calls these people that are this way dreamers. They're, they imagine things, okay? They defile the flesh. They reject authority. And this is interesting. They speak evil of dignitaries. What in the world is he talking about? And then he tells us what it means to speak evil of dignitaries. And I'm going to tell you before we get to it, well, I'll just read it nine. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, Lord, the Lord rebuke you. So he says, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beast in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. What he's talking about here is the people that run around and act like they have some supernatural power over demons and over the darker realm. We know from Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in high places. But Jude is saying not even Gabriel, when he was wrestling with Moses, wrestling with Satan over the body of Moses, you go, well, where's that in the Bible? Well, it's not, all right? But it doesn't mean that it didn't happen, all right? It was in the book of Enoch, and it's, uh, I think it's called the Assumption of Moses, uh, one of the early church father's origin talked about this and mentioned it. What it's saying is that even Gabriel, with all of his authority, didn't sit and command the devil to do this and command the devil to do that and devil get out of here. He realized he had no authority over the devil, and he said, may the Lord rebuke you. And, and I've seen these people that, that preach and talk like they have some kind of superpower, okay, over the evil realm, and guys, they don't. The power that is in us is greater than any power that is in the world. So you contain that power within you to say, the Lord rebuke you. And I've done that before. I've, say, I've said, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Get behind me. Leave me alone. All right? But we do that through the power of the Lord. These speak evil of whatever they do not know. It goes on. Then 11, woe to them, for they have gone into the way of Cain. Do you all remember who Cain was? Cain was Abel's brother, right? So what was Cain's big sin? That was part of it. But why did he slay Abel? He, he was envious of Abel, okay? He was envious of Abel, and he killed Abel, and he did it out of rebellion because Cain wanted his sacrifice to be what he wanted it to be and not what God required. So his real sin was rebellion against the Lord, and it ended up where that that whole sin took fruition, and he ended up killing his own brother, Abel, the first murder that ever happened on the planet. And it says, and they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for prophet. Do you all remember who Balaam was? Yeah, Balaam was this prophet. He was not a Jew. 
And I had extensive conversation with Dr. House about this. He wasn't a Jew. He was this prophet, though, and God would speak through him. And he ended up, he would try to curse Israel, and the words wouldn't come out of his mouth. He would try, and it couldn't. And remember, we know the whole thing about Balaam and his donkey and all that stuff. Right, I understand. Uh, you want to come up and preach? <laughs> yeah, he... he Balak, Balaam wanted money, and this king, Balak, had said, look, go curse the Jews because you're obviously a prophet, and then I'll give you money. But he ended up corrupting them anyway because Balaam hatched a scheme to send prostitutes that would go and, and compromise all the men of Israel. So really, Balaam, again, was another person, I think, that was rebellious. I put on the notes here, Cain betrayed his brother. Balaam betrayed Israel, and Korah betrayed Moses and Aaron. In, this, in all of these cases, it was an act of rebellion where they were going against what God intended, okay? And, and it's told us here that they perished. They all perished in the rebe uh, rebellion of Korah. So we have Balaam there, we have Cain, and then we have Korah as examples. Then he goes on to a real interesting thing here, and I've heard this all my life. These are spots in your love feast. What a strange thing to say. It's a very bad translation. I went and looked. That word for spots, if you look at the bottom here, look what it really means is its first most used uh, example and explanation, a rock in the sea, a ledge, or a reef. You know, in olden days, so many times ships would wreck on a reef that was down under the water. Do you all know what I mean? If you don't know, I'll show you a picture right there. Hidden reefs that wreaked havoc, he says, on love feasts. So these, these characters that come in and try to come in, will come in among us, or we're coming in among them, were wreaking havoc at their love feasts, getting into arguments, I guess, with people. Love feast, y'all, is what we do every Wednesday night when we have our community love feast. We have an agape meal. We don't call it that, but that's what it is. Uh-oh. Okay, I, it just disappeared. I got the big uh-oh. And anyway, he says, these spots, these are hidden reefs in your love feast. While they feast without, feast with you without fear, they serve themselves. And then, as I said, they are clouds without water. Remember how desperate we were for water this August? I mean, it got bad. I don't remember it this bad, but one other time since I've lived here in 25 years. And there was nothing more disappointing than seeing big clouds come over and you go, oh, man, it's going to rain. It's going to rain. It never rained. And some of y'all asked me, do you think it'll ever rain again? <laughs> I said, yeah, God is still on the throne. Unless he decides that he just wants to eliminate Whitehall from the earth, it will rain again here. But that's the way these people are. They come with their care, their great charisma and their teachings, and they seem to have all this knowledge, and they're nothing but clouds without water. They're autumn trees without fruit. They're those pecan trees that have no harvest, Okay twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming their own shame. And if you'll read the, uh, the sermon that I sent you, I talk about how raging waves of the sea and water is a symbol of chaos and Hebraic thinking. And I give you quite a few examples in there of that. He's just saying these guys are authors of chaos. They bring chaos and destruction into a little church body. And then he says they are wandering stars. I'm thinking that's a shooting star. It's that wandering stars for whom is reserved blackness of darkness forever. 
you know, you ever seen these gigantic, bright shooting stars that come? And you go, wow, look at that thing. And then psh, it's gone. So basically he's saying these guys are shooting stars that flame out real quick, okay? They are constantly undermining, as I said, authority. They try to take over the legitimate work of God. They think they have a better way. They're emotion-driven, sensuality-focused apostates. That's the kind of people these are. They're self-centered and self-serving. I've been counseling a person, and that person's problem, like most of our problems when we need counseling, is they're always looking at themselves, okay? And so this morning, I sent that person a text, and I told them that they pull down these strongholds that are in high places. Ours are spiritual weapons, all right? Pulling down self is one of the things that we can rely on the Lord to do. We may not be strong enough. But I said, it's all a big con. They teach of great and marvelous things. They deliver nothing. They're raging waves of the sea. And I talked about Noah's flood, the Red Sea, a furious storm. And then we go on. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also. Some of y'all have wondered and heard or asked me, what is the book of Enoch? Anybody ever wondered what's the book of Enoch? It was a book that was in common, let's say, understanding there to these first century Jews who knew what these stories were in it. And it has much of that backstory, Tim, that I talked about in Genesis 6. It is not part of our canon, meaning it's not part of our, our, our whole Bible. But there are some churches like the Coptic church and the Etrian church, which I guess is in Eritrea is like in Somalia or something, I think, near there. Yeah, and the Coptic, which there's still Coptic Christians in Egypt. They adopted this as part of their canon. So it's not in ours, and, and I don't think it's the inspired word of God, but I think it's something that is referred to sometimes in the New Testament. So we know that parts that refer to it are, are true or they wouldn't be in God's word. Largely, it's a book of judgment and backstory. So Jude's saying, y'all have all read Enoch. It says that what you sow, you're going to reap. That's what he's saying to them. He's simply reiterating the point that judgment has come to those who oppose God. Judgment will come to those who oppose God. And then he begins to finish up. These are grumblers, complainers. Y'all ever met any grumblers or complainers? They walk according to their own desires. And they mouth great swelling words. They flatter people. You know, so much, so many times, false teaching comes in the form of manipulation. If you don't think that, get on YouTube and look up Jim Jones and watch how he manipulated crowds. Ended up killing over a thousand people, killed themselves, thinking the world was going to come to an end. He says, but you, beloved, and he gives us uh, some admonition here. Remember the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. I will ask you today, are there mockers that are walking according to their own ungodly lust? Wow, I would say so. Peter talked about this. We covered it. Knowing this, I'm reading 2 Peter 3, 3 through 7. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue like they were from the beginning of creation. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment. 
So back to verse 19, these are sensual persons. They come in, they create division in a church because they don't have the spirit. Now we've had people that have come here. I've only invited a couple of people to ever leave. And I invited them to leave, not because of sin in their life or because they made somebody mad. I invited them to leave our fellowship when they created division. Unity is very, very important to God. And I praise the Lord that we have walked pretty much, I'd say 98% of the time in our fellowship in unity. Can you all say praise God for that? Do you all know how rare that is in a church? It's pretty rare. 20, here's what we're supposed to be doing. Build yourselves up on the most holy faith. How do you build yourself up? By doing what you're doing right now. Studying God's word and seeing how it applies to your life. Praying in the Holy Spirit. And I think that means to pray real prayers that are not just rote prayers where you are there and you're saying, Holy Spirit of God, move me, help me. Lord, direct me today in my life that I would be about your business. Guys, that's praying in the Spirit. And keep yourselves in the love of God. That just means stay right with what you're doing. Understand that God loves you. And uh, he, he'll never leave you, and he'll never forsake you. And look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And then he winds it up. He says, some, and on some have compassion. Make a distinction. So he's saying, you're going to have people that get out and get weird in your group and do bad stuff. He says, but others you save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. It's kind of interesting. I contemplated this for a while, and I think what Jude is telling us is to have mercy and compassion on those in our group that get caught up in sin. Don't be the first one to pick up the stone and throw it, right? And secondly, be passionate about the gospel. Share it with those who are lost. It's literally like pulling people out of a burning house. Never be ashamed to share with someone the way that they can have eternal life. And then on this business about the garment, I said, I think when he says hating the garment, I think that's where we say that we can hate a sin, but we love a sinner, okay? We don't beat people up because of this garment they have on, but we, we love them, and we, if, as long as they're desirous, we help them work through whatever it is, the problem that they're having. And he ends up now, and this is a great way to end up, after all that condemnation, 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Oh, wow. The Lord is able to keep us from stumbling through the power of his Holy Spirit. And not only that, he will present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He is giving assurance to believers. We don't have to worry and get scared about when we get to heaven and God's going to remember something I did to somebody. That is not going to be there. You're going to be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And then he says, to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Guys, that's the, that's the book of Jude. <laughs> Thank you, Janie. Uh, it's, that's kind of a quick run through. But you've got the 10-page version. It's in your email box. And I thank you so much for walking through this with me. Don't you feel you have a better understanding about what Jude was talking about? Praise the Lord. Brother.